and I read Stephen Levine's book, Who Dies, while I was a monk. And something clicked. I can even remember the place where it clicked. It's one of those moments in my life where you remember what, what, what you were doing. And I remember thinking, I think this is what I really need to do for myself. That somehow the richness of the life as a forest monk had given me a certain stillness of mind, a certain quality of, of composure, but a, there was a growing sense of dryness in me that somehow I hadn't bridged the open-hearted response to life. And I felt that working with the dying and on myself in that way would somehow give me a richer inner sense of my own life through facing my own death. And it has. It has in ways that I would like to share with you tonight. One of the most disappointing things that I see that is happening to the West is the loss of the sense of mystery about their living. They are no longer, we are no longer in touch with something else, some other possibility. Especially in this culture where we run very quickly to what is known, to what is secure, behind the safety of our science, behind the safety of naming and locking things into place, freezing time, and missing the elephant on the coffee table. It's as if somebody is, was giving you a newspaper to read and you had no idea what the contents of that newspaper w was and you locked your eyes on one word and just stared at that one word and the whole rest of the newspaper was unknown. It's as if science has pointed us our minds in a certain direction and we have frozen and locked upon that direction and the mystery has been lost. I'll give you an example of the mystery. A young woman, 33 years old, dying of uterine cancer, two small children, 
this was when I was in Houston. And in Houston, we have an inpatient hospice as well as a home care. And she was in the home, and she wanted to suddenly one day, she wanted to go into our inpatient unit. I couldn't understand it because she had really wanted to stay at home up until that time. But we sensed that she knew something that we didn't, so we took her into the inpatient unit. And immediately when she started to get in there, she started to actively die. But what was unusual about this death was that she was fully conscious and talking to us about what was going on as she was dying. Very unusual. Usually people are too weak to communicate or they're in coma. And we stood around the bed. There were two nurses, myself and an aide, I believe, and we were holding her hands, her hand around the bed in a chain and holding her other hand so that we were forming a loop with her hands. And she started talking us through the dying experience. And she said, I can no longer see. I can no longer feel. Sensations on her skin. And I was looking around at the people as well as herself who were in the room. And it was as if they, a, a, a secret was going to be revealed to us. We were on the edge of our seats. There was vitality and interest, enthusiasm. We were right there, present with each word that this woman was speaking. And then she said, my God, I'm no longer in my body. And then she said, the light, it's so bright, and then she didn't say anything else. We were frozen on the edge of that mystery. And no one spoke for minutes after that because we wanted to contain that sense of awesomeness that had just been revealed. We wanted to embrace it somehow. We wanted to bring it into our hearts. And no one knew how to do that. That's the potential of our lives, to live on that edge of mystery. That's what our lives could be. But the other side of that mystery is fear. And the fear is equally as intense as the interest. because the mind loses its security on the edge of not knowing. And there's panic. And to be able to live with that panic and still rest in the awesomeness of the world, that's the secret of the practice. There is no other. There was a Taj Mahal song that once the lyrics wrote, uh, were written that said, um, 
Do you remember as a child when you woke up and morning smiled? It's time, it's time, it's time we felt like that again. That sense of exploration, of wonder, that sense of vitality and interest, where has it gone for us? What happens to us? We are called upon in this practice to make that ordinary life of ours into the extraordinary life of the moment lived of that mystery had and held about 20 years ago my mother died My father, who is a scientist, a very straight scientist, never considered any other options in his life that weren't presented through science. He confided in me years after my mother died that he had a secret he was going to tell me, but he didn't want me to tell any of my other brothers and sisters or family. And it's only since he's died a few years ago that I felt comfortable in even sharing this. He said, I'm going to tell you something. And it has shaken me to my roots. He said, a few days after your mother died, I was sitting on the bed. And I was grieving. And suddenly I felt her presence. She put her arm around me and she whispered in my ear, I'm very sorry, but you'll be okay. And then he very quickly went into his scientific, he says, no, I'm not sure that really happened. He said, I can't prove that. But as he was saying it, his voice was quivering. And I knew he believed it happened. And it had shaken his scientific foundation so that he was a little bit afraid that maybe what he had cultivated his entire life wasn't the whole truth. Maybe that single word on the page wasn't entire manuscript. Maybe. A few years ago, the New York Times ran an article about people who have had mystical experiences in their lives. And about 50% of people on the street have had some sort of mystical experience in their life. Some sense that there is an awesome oneness to things or a presence of God or something. 
But the interesting thing wasn't that statistic. It was the next one, which said that 80% of the 50% that had had this experience never wanted to have another one because it had shaken them to such an extent that they couldn't settle back comfortably into what they were doing, into their usual routines. That's what we're doing here, or that's what we should be doing here. We should be shaking our usual routines. You see, and this comes from experience, believe me, you can sit there for years and cultivate your usual routine. I had a teacher tell me once, he said, Rodney, the closest you were to that mystery was the first minute you sat down on that cushion, the first day of the first time you ever meditated, and you said to yourself, what's this all about? What is this? What, what's going on? And after that, you became more and more knowledgeable about what was going on and further and further away from the mystery. If we use this practice to condition a sense of knowing what spiritual life is all about, what our path is, where we're going on that path, how we're going to get there, we have a whole scenario. What, what are we doing? But if we sit down with the tenderness of a child and really question, what is this? What is this thing? What's, what is this? As those of us who are standing around the bed of that dying lady, then that puts us on the edge that gives us an opportunity for something else to be revealed. You know, working with the dying has allowed me to come to a deeper and deeper sense of appreciation things. And I think that appreciation comes from not being so certain about everything, from not having a foundation, from not having some sense of firmness under my feet all the time, just being slightly shaken. How would you experience your breath if you had lung cancer with days to live? How would you experience each step you took 
if you knew you'd never walk again after tonight. That's appreciation. And you don't have to use words with people who are dying. They know what you're talking about. I had a, a woman, she's 49, dying of lung cancer. Her house overlooked the shore, beautiful home. And she was dying in her bed upstairs, looking out over the ocean. And she says, you know, I've seen the sun hit the water a thousand times in my life, but I've never appreciated it like I am right now. When you don't have tomorrow to dull yourself with, when you don't, have t- when you don't beat your vitality with time, then we can appreciate with a full impact of all the beauty and wonder of what is right now. (coughs) You know, the practice that we do here, the sitting meditation, the walking, it's not preparation for something else. It's not that we're doing this in some sense of time for something to happen to us so that then we'll be finished with it, everything, and that's that. It's not that. And to think like that is killing the practice. It is what is. That's it. There's nothing else but this. There's nothing that you have to become in order to. Nothing. The elephant is on the coffee table. Why do we have to wait? What needs to change? What does the prospect of dying give us? that we don't carry with us every single day so that we have that vitality. And you know, I think the answer is very simple. I think it's a sense of urgency. And the many different meditations, practices, groups that I've been a part of, the common thread foundation of a spiritual practice, I think, 
the most important element is that sense of not panicked urgency. It's not the urgency of fear that you're going to miss something. It's the urgency that we had around that bed listening to that woman. Total aliveness, total attention. Ninety-nine percent of that's not good enough. The willingness to risk is essential for that urgency. Because to risk means that we go beyond our fear, that we're willing to face it our fear and we're never going to feel the urgency to face our fear without that risking something I wrote for a hospice newsletter last year when I was just about ready to make a transition quit my job in Houston and moved to another scene I said Risking is the interface between fear and growth. It is the action taken without guarantees to free our lives from the dullness we face. We do not know what will happen, but the alternative becomes intolerable. The truly remarkable thing is not that we get dull, but that we often choose to stay in that dullness until we die. It is remarkable because we know what we are doing and refuse to risk. I have found that life responds when we risk. It meets us more than halfway and it is safe. The heart's sure release is in moving with that risk. It is taking that step without assurance. I don't want to be 70 years old on my deathbed saying to myself, I wish I had. There is no other way to open the door of the heart except by risking our fears. And what do we have to lose? But we don't risk because life's going to be here forever, isn't it? Tomorrow we've got our things planned and the next week and next month. And so why risk now? It's too easy just to... But is it? You know, I want to talk a little bit about reflecting on death because it brings that sense of urgency to what we're doing and invites the possibility of risking. Within 75 years, everybody in this room will be dead. And perhaps considerably less than 75 years. 
Each of us are on a one-way road when we're born. From birth, growing old, to our death. Physical death. And our lives move certainty, with certainty, towards that conclusion. In the sutras it says, just as an arrow skillfully shot by an archer quickly reaches the target, so too are our human lives. Once there was a woman in the Buddha's time who had lost her child and she carried her small child on her back refusing to believe that it was really dead and she went to many of the healers and the doctors around India at that time and all of them said look your child is dead and she wouldn't believe them and one intelligent doctor said look just go see this man out in the forest and see if he can help you and your child and he, and she po- and he pointed the way to the Buddha and so she took the child on her back on her shoulder into the forest where the Buddha was and she said to the Buddha would you heal my child and the Buddha said yes I will but I want you to do something for me if you want me to heal your child I want you to find me one mustard seed from a house in the nearby village that hasn't experienced death. And at that time in India, they were living in extended family homes. So there were generations in each home. And naturally, every house that she came to had experienced death. And so she went from door to door to door to door to door, asking if this is house, if they would give her a mustard seed if this house had not experienced death and no one was able to do that and finally somewhere along the line she woke up to the understanding that death was an integral part of life that it wasn't something outside of life to be feared or to be denied and it said that she went back to the Buddha and they buried her child We need to bring that sense of death, that we are going to die, into our lives. That life isn't a limitless series of days. Living one day, next day, next day. But rather that the treasure of this moment, the beauty of it, this is it. How do we breathe when we when we live like that? How do we walk? How do we see things? How do we... How are we with our children? You know, one of the things we often tell patients that they go through a series of very difficult mind states, as you might consider, as they are 
getting close to their death. And sometimes they are very difficult to be with and their families are pulling their hair out. And I say to them, how do you want to be remembered? Is this how you want to be remembered? One case in particular, this man just, my God, he realized that his, the way he was going on, it wasn't, he wasn't acknowledging his death in some way. That the death, that the way he was living now was going to be how his family was going to remember him. And that's not what he wanted to convey. There's a lot of fear during that time. There was a patient that I had. who kept calming his fears by saying, you know, it's the will of God that I'm going to die. It's the will of God. And he would tell himself that so that he wouldn't be afraid, but all it was doing was really making him more afraid. And I said to him, is it the will of God that you're not dead yet? And he said, yes, it's also the will of God that I'm still alive. I said, then why don't you just watch the will of God? And there was something that clicked with that. That he could be with his sense of aliveness, knowing with an urgency, with an attention, with a passion, and not be afraid of dying, but to use his dying as a way to communicate to him his sense of, his sense of mystery. A philosopher named Nargajuna, who this philosopher says, Life is so fragile, no more than a bubble blown to and fro by the wind. How astonishing to think that after an out-breath there will be an in-breath, or that we will awaken again after a night's sleep. We take so much for granted. In a book called The Unforgettable Fire, is a book about the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. 
The morning started with a clear blue sky. I got on a streetcar at about 8.40. The door was opened and I was standing there. As I heard the starting bell ring, I saw a silver flash and heard an explosion. Everything was instantly covered with a pink-blue light. The light was hot and painful. Glass shattered and attacked me on my head, neck, and face. I was pushed down by a strong force. The next moment, everything went dark. That could be a traffic accident. That could be a heart attack. That could be the waning days of cancer. How astonishing to think that there will be an in-breath after an out-breath. How we dull our lives counting on that next breath. How we lose the sense of urgency and the ability to risk and the sense of mystery from assuming so much that's so fragile. In the book, Carlos Castaneda books, the wise man, an Indian, Mexican Indian, was named Don Juan. Carlos was the student. Don Juan says to Carlos, We don't have time, my friend. That is the misfortune of human beings. Focus your attention on the link between you and your death without remorse or sadness. Focus your attention on the fact that you don't have time and let that fact act accordingly. Let each of your acts be your last battle on earth. Only under those conditions will your acts have any rightful power. Otherwise, your acts will be those of a timid person. And Carlos says, is it so terrible to be a timid person? Don Juan responds, no, it isn't if you're going to be immortal. But if you're going to die, there is no time to be timid because timidity is fear of life. It soothes you while everything is at a law, but then the awesome, mysterious world will open its mouth for you and you will realize your sure ways were not sure at all. Being timid prevents us from, from being fully human. You know, that's why reflecting on death is useful. It keeps us on our edge, not the fearful edge, our natural edge, the edge that is there when there isn't fear. The mystery reveals itself in the absence of fear. It's not that we have to do something to get to the mystery. I have seen so many dying people, they just aren't interested in what the weather's like. They're not interested in the normal chit-chat of everyday living. 
One lady I served had lymphoma with when I saw her about a month to live. She had just lost her husband from lung cancer while she was being diagnosed with a lymphoma. Lymphoma is cancer of the lymph nodes. And she said to me, she was way back in there. She was so hurt from the pain of her own prognosis as well as having lost her husband. And I said, what is it that keeps you going now? And she said, my daughter and the appreciation of life. And I said, you know, though no one would ever have wished this situation on you, look at the blessing that it is for you. How many people die with that kind of understanding? For what you're telling me is that what really means something to you now is love, love for your daughter, and the vitality of being awake and alive in a way that you never have before. Maybe it's the fact that I turned 40 a couple of years ago. Krishnamurti used to say, the pressure of death never touches you until 40. (laughs) But there does seem to be a growing sense in myself that this is not going to last forever. Up until that time, I didn't really ever consider it. It just didn't, just wasn't something I ever considered. And it's caused a lot of turmoil, mental turmoil, because I want to use my time right. I want to use my time appropriately. And yet you have to respect the fear. It's not to say that we need to go back, close down our lives, and head off to a forest monastery or to a teacher. You have to respect the fear. The fear needs to be bowed to. It needs to be understood. It needs to be appreciated along with all the other aspects of life. Don Juan again. Death is our eternal companion. It is always to the left at arm's length. It has always been watching you and it always will until the day it taps you on the shoulder. How can anyone feel so important when we know our death is stalking us? The thing to do when you become impatient is turn to your left and ask advice from your death. 
an immense amount of pettiness is dropped if you acknowledge its presence. Carlos says, I believe you, but stop, I'm terrified. Don Juan continues, the issue of our death is never pressed far enough. Death is the only advisor we have. When you think everything is going well and you will live forever, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Death will tell you that you are wrong. Death will tell you he hasn't touched you yet, and thus you will drop the pettiness of a human who lives their lives as if death will never touch them. You know, death, the message of death is that we can't have life on our own terms. That's also the sole reason that we suffer. And yet that's the ever-present message that physical death is willing to impart to us. All struggles come from that. Krishnamurti once said, do you want to know what it's like to die? Everybody goes, yeah. He said, think of the thing you like the most and drop it. That's death. Although there is physical death, there is a much greater death, which is the spiritual practice that we do. That's the death of not knowing of being on the edge of that mystery all the time. That's the death that puts the end to time. Physical death does not put an end to time. Time will follow us through death. I've seen too many people die. I am convinced of that. There's no peace in that. Story about Ramdas visiting death row at San Quentin. There were 35 men condemned to death at death row. He wrote, I went up to each cell. There were only a few who didn't receive me openly, consciously and quietly. The feeling I had was that I was visiting a monastery for those men who were facing death have pushed, were pushed into a situation which has cut their melodrama. And they are right here 
We set together, sending out love and peace to all beings. Death Row San Quentin. There was light pouring from these people's eyes. We were so open. I said, I can't tell whether what has happened to you is a blessing or a curse, for there is very little chance we would be sharing this space together if you weren't on death row. May we all be on death row. Can we sit together for a few minutes? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.